0: So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy.
1: Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We are continuing in our series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, and we're looking at these seven sets of prophetic terms as we get ready for our next teaching series, which will be an overview of the next, actually the the final 30 prophetic events that take place in the Bible between now, today, uh, even though there are no prophetic events um, taking place, we are certainly seeing the stage setting, if you will, for the next prophetic event that kicks it all off, and that's going to be the uh, the rapture of the church. And of course, we don't know when that's going to be, but we are admonished over and over again in the New Testament to eagerly await that event. And, of course, if it's going to be an event that involves punishment and judgment and darkness and so forth, I find it hard to believe that we would be uh, admonished, particularly by Paul, who, of course, as you know, had the experience uh, at the beginning of his ministry, actually before he ever went on his first ministry tour, <laughs> ministry effort, if you will, not so much a tour tour, But before he did that, he was taken to the third heaven and shown what we are all looking forward to. And while he could not come back to the earth and tell us what he saw, his language changed, his demeanor changed, and he became willing to undergo the most brutal um, punishments that could be meted out on a person all the way to being stoned and left for dead, if you recall, during his first missionary journey. And rather than get up from that stoning and head home, because his home, actually there in what we call modern day Turkey, was not that far away, he turned around and got back and, and got up and went back in to the mouth of the lion, if you will, so to speak, and went back through the cities that he had just left. And it says he went there to encourage them and to strengthen them. So we see that when you know what's ahead with a confident expectation, we're called it the Bible calls it in the English, and the English is unfortunate. It says the great hope. The word hope in Greek means confident expectation. When you have the confident expectation that Paul had, he was willing to put up with everything, including death, and his verbiage reflected it. He said when you run the race, train yourself as a as an athlete trains. And, of course, we're not talking about an athletic event. We're talking about a spiritual walk. And when he means train, he means to be in the Word, study the Word, share with other people, learn from other people, learn from the, the uh, people who write about the Bible, but be discerning about which books you do read. Uh, there are good commentaries out there. There are good books, but then there are books that are very misleading uh, on the surface, and there are others that are what I would call insidious in that they kind of creep in and catch you after they've hooked you into some some feel-good language, and then they start talking about things that are a misinterpretation of the Word. So that is why this ministry uh, is in existence, is to take the literal Word of God and bring as much scriptural evidence to bear against each and every point to show you that while no one is perfect in their interpretation, God intended only one interpretation. And it's our responsibility as Christians to work, work at it. Yes, W-O-R-K, to put effort, to put energy, to put time into studying God's word. One, because it edifies us and helps us to root out the misinformation which is called a discernment. But most importantly, it's what pleases God. And I want to do what pleases God, and I know you do too. And the more you study the Word, the more enriched you are by the knowledge that you gain through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and you want to do even more, and you want to share with others what you are learning. Uh, there is no great leap between a disciple and a disciple in the Bible is someone who sat at the foot or the feet of a teacher, and an apostle, and an apostle. Whether it's the capital A apostles of the of the Bible or the lowercase A apostles that are listed in Ephesians as um, you know parts of the church. Apostles are messengers. The word means messenger. And when you learn things and you gain the confidence that you to the best of your understanding, and we're never. No one's ever 100% sure of 100% of the Bible. Um, I'm saying that because I I tend to think that's the case, even though that is our goal. Our goal is to be as Christ-like as we can, which means to know as much as we can about the truth of God's Word. But I don't know that we're going to know it all until we see Jesus face-to-face in our perfected bodies. But that's why we're doing this. That's why we're going to go over those 30 prophetic events between now and eternity, the end of the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the last book of the, of the Bible is where we want to end up when we finish that. So in the meantime, we're going through these prophetic terms and we're in uh, prophetic term set number two where we're con- contrasting the day of Christ, which is about the rapture, and the day of the Lord, which the, the key event, if you will, in the day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ to judge the world. And it's very clear if you've been with us for a while or if you've downloaded the uh, worksheet from the radio station, as the announcer has pointed out, you'll, you'll have the scriptures to go over yourself in your own quiet time. But you can clearly see, at least I hope you can, that when you look at the scriptures for the day of Christ, you can't find any Old Testament scriptures because it is a mystery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people only had a view of the first coming or the first advent of Christ and then the second advent or second coming of Christ. They had no view of what was in between. And what's in between is the church age, beginning at the at um, Pentecost and ending at the rapture. So they have no view of this, so that's why they didn't write about it. But in the New Testament, it's written about quite a bit, and you see those New Testament Statements and they're all very positive, they're very encouraging, they're very filled with light, if you will, as opposed to darkness. And then contrasting that is the day of the Lord, where it's all dark and gloom and doom and calamity and destruction and death. And we see that over and over again. And you see the preponderance of the Old Testament passages because it is applying uh, when it was written to Israel. It does include the unbelieving Gentiles, yes, but the, the, the framework of it, the impetus of it, the focus of it, and the outcome of it is about Israel, if you just allow the scriptures to, to lay themselves out in front of you. And what I've reserved for the end uh, of our discussion of, of this set of terms, number two, day of Christ, day of the Lord. Is to look at the New Testament perspective on the Day of the Lord, and the reason I've saved that for last, and that's where we were uh, starting yesterday with First Thessalonians chapter five. And if you would turn there, so we're we're ready to go. First Thessalonians chapter five. We're going to look at the first eleven verses, and we're going to s- stay in um, principally in First uh, and Second Thessalonians as we uh, finish this up, because what Paul does with his letters to the Thessalonians is to answer their question, have we missed the rapture, have we missed the day of Christ, and are we therefore experiencing the day of the Lord, which starts at the midpoint of the tribulation. While the day of Christ is a specific day, a specific point in time involving a specific group of people, the day of the Lord is a long period of time According to Peter, that starts with the middle of the tribulation, goes through the second coming of Christ, through the millennial kingdom to the great white throne judgment. So, if you want to calculate that, that's a thousand years for the millennial kingdom and three and a half years for the second half of the tribulation. So, one thousand and three and a half years is the length of the day of the Lord. But as I said, there are specific elements to the day of the Lord and probably chief among those would be the second coming of Christ and the judgment of the world. And he is explaining to them that no Thessalonians or the believers in Thessalonica. You have not missed the day of Christ. No, you are not in the day of the Lord. And he's explaining that to them. So you think, what better way to Understand it for ourselves than, than to pay attention to what he's telling the Thessalonians because he's talking to the church. The church started, oh, I don't know, roughly 20 years before at, at Pentecost. And now is, it, it, it's basically exploding throughout the Middle East, principally throughout Turkey and Greece, because that's where Paul uh, has been and will be going as he goes on his three missionary journeys and uh, he's writing this key letter to the Thessalonians. And he's not talking about just simple salvation. He's talking about the heavy, the heavyweight stuff. He's talking about prophecy. He's talking about the end-of-time events, uh, which we are told over and over again that unless you're a mature Christian and you've spent years in God's Word, you really can't grasp what's being talked about in the Bible regarding prophecy well paul kind of dashed that on the rocks with the thessalonians because he was only with them for a handful of weeks and he even makes the point in first uh, thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2 he says for you yourselves talking to the thessalonians you yourselves know full well in other words i've i've taught this to you you know this full well you you can teach this stuff <laughs> so he has um given us this wonderful opportunity in the Scripture through the leading of the Holy Spirit to understand and contrast the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And we were in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we started out in verse 2 because that's where we see the term, the day of the Lord. For you know yourselves full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And we spent time in John chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11, you find those on your worksheet, to show that when he uses the term, when Christ uses the term a thief, he's talking about judgment, he's talking about destruction, he's talking about thievery, he's talking about theft and robbery. So he's talking about negative. He is talking about himself, but he's talking about himself as the son of man, even though he's God. Remember, we went back and spent a lot of time, a lot of scriptures. If you have your worksheets or you've been with us for a while, you know that we spent a lot of time to differentiate the functionality of Christ as the Son of God and the functionality of Christ as the Son of Man. And we know from the scriptures confidently that the Son of Man is the one who will come as a thief, he will come as the great judge, and he will bring bring destruction and he will bring death. And he will steal, as in steal the lives of these people and send them to the lake of fire for their unbelief. So he is describing himself, but he's saying, this is the day of the Lord. This is when I come back the second time to judge the world. This is not the day of Christ. This is not the rapture. So you have not missed it. And so he starts giving uh, signposts, establishing signposts for them to understand, and of course, it could have applied in their time, and I need to make this point here because we don't want to dwell on it too much because it didn't happen, but he, he, Paul, in his lifetime on the earth, expected the Lord to come back in his lifetime because he, particularly when he uses the descriptive terms about himself and the church, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Just one chapter back, if you read verses 13 to 18, you see how he says, we who are alive, so we who are alive will be translated to heaven. We will never see death. And he was fully expecting that. So when he was talking to these people right here, they could have experienced the tribulation Uh, Jews, I should say, Jews, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles could have experienced a tribulation time right there because they knew from the Old Testament teachings that regardless of the first coming, there would have been first coming or second coming, there would be a tribulation, a cleansing, if you will, of the righteous and the unrighteous, a uh, retaking of the earth by Christ, and then a setting up of his kingdom. And of course, his gospel of the kingdom preached that he was there to set up the kingdom at that time, which would have been preceded by a tribulation, as again, all prophesied in the Old Testament. So he's telling them here, and of course now he's telling them, as we know, having having the benefit of hindsight, having the benefit of the completed 66 books of the Bible, everything that God wants us to know. Of course, they did not have that complete revelation of the truth uh, at that point in time, only what Paul was telling them, which was verbally enough because what Paul told them and, of course, the other writers of the New Testament ended up being canonized, as we we know, in the um, 27 books of the New Testament. So we have the benefit of looking back and knowing that these are road signs that are yet to take place because we know there was no tribulation and there was no setting up of the kingdom 2,000 years ago. So we instinctively and and factually actually know that it is yet to happen. And he tells them in verse 3 that while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. And that peace and safety, we went last time to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 and explained about the treaty that the Antichrist will enter into with Israel because it's part of the Daniel 9 prophecy to the Israelites So, even though it doesn't say Israel, it says the many, it's addressed to Israel, as is that whole prophecy. And it says that there will be a treaty, but at the midpoint, and in the words, the uh, first three and a half years are over, uh, he's allowed them to set up the kingdom. He's going to go, kingdom, he's allowed them to set up the temple. And they believe that he is the Christ, falsely believe that he is the Christ, when in, in reality he's the Antichrist. And he comes into the temple, he uh, declares himself co- God, and therefore desecrates the temple and revokes the treaty. And at that point, he goes after Israel, and that is what is, is uh, called the Great Tribulation. The great, the term Great Tribulation is typically, uh, is, is, is um, correctly, I should say, not typically, correctly applied to Israel's experience in the Tribulation. Because the first three and a half years are a horrible time. But it's a horrible time for the world. But the focus is on Israel. And Israel is in relative peace and safety during that period of time. And I want us to go to Isaiah. Um, hadn't intended to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and put it in the worksheet for you there. Isaiah 28. So go back to the Old Testament about midway through the Old Testament there and find Isaiah and find Isaiah 28. I want you to I want to share this with you because this is talking about the treaty that the antichrist enters in with with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. And in Isaiah 28, I want us to go to verse 14. It says therefore hear the word of the Lord o scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem because you have said we have a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. That's a, re- that's a reference to the Antichrist. They have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge, and of course this is the movement of the Antichrist and his death and path of destruction. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Verse 18, your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. What a wonderful word from God to these unbelieving Jews who have made this treaty with the Antichrist. We're going to discuss that in more detail as we continue to uh, conclude our look at the day of the Lord here in First and Second Thessalonians. But now we need to transition, as we always do, to our Q&A time in each of our programs. And we have been answering a question that asks, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy. And, of course, we went over, first of all, John 16, 12 to 14, to show you that the Holy Spirit indwells the church and wants to lead the church into a complete and full understanding of God's Word. So if we let the Holy Spirit lead us through a study of the Scriptures, we can see that, yes, God wed Israel God wed Israel. He made all of his covenants initially with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before Egypt. Then he sent the 12 tribes from Jacob, later named Israel, into Egypt to be tested over that period of time that he had foretold Abram all about back in Genesis. So they went into Egypt, they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, and at the point that they came to Mount Sinai, three months after they came out, they were wedded to God. And we went through that wedding ceremony, and that was in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, was the proposal from God, the, the bridegroom, if you will. And then Exodus 19, verse 8, is the bride's answer back. Both of them answered, I will. But the key thing is Israel said, I will. So they were basically wedded to God. And then we went over scriptures in Jeremiah 3.14, Hosea 2.16, and Isaiah 54, verse 5, where God refers to himself or is described as the husband of Israel. So that's a key point to understand, and you will not hear that Uh, Or we'll rarely hear anybody talk about that because most of your mainline denominations today, both Catholic and Protestant, uh, don't teach that. Don't preach that because it's part of, they say it's part of a false gospel. Well, the false gospel that's actually out there that is becoming more and more pervasive, unfortunately, that false gospel teaches that the church is the center of God's plans for mankind from Genesis to Revelation. The church is the center of God's plans for mankind, from Genesis to Revelation. And I cannot, through a literal study of the Bible, cannot support that with any scriptures. Studied in its literal sense, you cannot support that. There is the church age that we are in that the Old Testament doesn't talk about because the church didn't exist in the Old Testament according to the Bible, according to literal interpretation. The church age didn't start until the New Testament. And it's important, I believe, here for us as Christians to know, just to understand that the church began at Pentecost, which was in Acts chapter 2, which was 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the ga- from the grave And 10 days after he went back to heaven, because he had to leave, according to John chapter 16, he had to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell the church. So the church began at Pentecost, which would have been in 30, you know, 32 AD, and it will end, the church age will end at the rapture. That's a point in time event that is signless, it's yet to happen, but I believe it's the next event on the prophetic calendar. So it's 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 coming. So with that as an understanding, everything before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and everything after the rapture is all about Israel and its relationship with her husband. Now that relationship, albeit, has been a very difficult relationship and you can, you can take verses out of context all through the Old Testament and make the case that Israel couldn't possibly be married to God because look how terrible she has acted as a nation, as a, um, an ethnic group of people for millennia. How can they possibly be the, the wife of God? Well, it's very clear that they are and that God will uh, turn his attention back to Israel uh, because it's uh, she is his wife, he will turn his attention back to Israel once the church is taken out of the way. So I want us to look at a couple of scriptures to make the case that the church is going to be taken out of the way so that God can turn his attention to his wife because it's she is the main character, if you will, in end-time prophecy. So if you would, let's go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We want to go to Acts 15, and Paul has been out on a missionary journey, and he has come back to meet with the church elders in Jerusalem, um, with the apostles are there, and um, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who early on in Jesus' ministry did not believe Jesus, thought he was crazy, along with his mother Mary, and the rest of the family. Yes, that's true. You find it in several places in the Old Testament. They thought he was crazy. Uh, But he came to not only have an abiding faith in Jesus, a belief in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, but he ended up being the president of the Jerusalem council. And it says in Acts 15, as the council has been listening, and they've been listening to Peter, and they've been listening to Paul relate about the Gentiles coming to faith And it says in verse um, 14, Simon, meaning Peter, has related how God first. So we have an order, a sequential order here. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Then what's the next event after that? With these words, the prophets agree, just as it is written. That's verse 15. Verse 16, after these things, I will return. After what things? Verse 14, God taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's a reference to the rapture of the church. And then verse 16 is a reference to the second coming of Christ. So you see the sequence of events there and the things that Christ will do when he comes back, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. That's the temple in Jerusalem. That's the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in its um, um, righteousness. All Israel will be saved at that point. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and then I will begin drawing people to myself. So that's Acts 15. I want to build on Acts 15 with some other scriptures in our next program uh, as we look at the um, how God deals with his wife during the tribulation. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air.
0: Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.